Everybody hear me yet? There I am. Hey guys, we are so glad you're here tonight. It's good to see you guys all back. Week three is what we're at now. Uh, if you guys don't know me, uh, my name is Alex Gray. I help co-direct Veritas here at The Crossing. So a little bit about me. Uh, I'm from St. Louis, uh, but I came here to Columbia in 2009, woof, uh, for Mizzou. I came to school here, and then I just never left. Like, I have fallen in love with Columbia. I love it a lot. Uh, and I've been working here at The Crossing with college students for a little over seven years now, I think. And I was thinking about this uh, probably last week when, like, we were in the busiest week of our fall. Uh, and I was thinking about it, and, and I am just, like, convinced at this point that there is no other job that I would really want to be doing. Like, genuinely, I think I have the best job because I get to work with you guys. Like, I love time with college students. I really enjoy the conversations that I get to have with you. I enjoy so much about you. But in particular, one thing I've been thinking about is how much I love the questions that you guys ask. And maybe that sounds weird. But you guys are in, like, a, a weird window of your life right now where as a college student, most of you, you are surrounded with tons of people. Like all day, every day, you're surrounded by people who have different backgrounds from you, they have different beliefs, they have different worldviews, ideas, things that they put their hope in. It's all, you guys are all in this like melting pot. And what that does is it brings up a, a lot of questions. Like it forces you guys to think about what you believe about the world. It forces you to think about and ask questions about what you think is true and right and good, all those things. And so I love hearing those questions. Our staff team, we love getting to be a part of those questions because we think that it really, those questions, they're like, they're, they're shaping who you are right now and in these four years of college. But more than that, they're, the questions you're asking right now, they are gonna be shaping who you are, who you become for the rest of your life. And so again, we love these questions, which means that this semester, on Tuesday nights, we're gonna do something a little bit differently. We are gonna be going through a series called Hard Questions, Uneasy Answers. Hard Questions, Uneasy Answers. And each week, we're just gonna take one of those questions. We're gonna take a question that we've been getting from you guys and we're gonna wrestle with it a little bit. We're gonna see what the Bible has to say about it. And the questions that we're gonna be asking, I promise they're not like, they're not like straw man questions that we just created to talk about what we wanna talk about, right? These are questions that you guys have actually asked us. Either in the past, we polled you guys, we got some answers or some questions from you guys. But honestly, also, I've, I've gotten these same questions from a lot of my friends. Like, we have these conversations. My family members ask these questions. A lot of them are things that I've had to wrestle with on my own over the years. So we're excited about these questions. Honestly, we are not shying away from some pretty hefty questions, just so you know. We're going to be going through uh, some things like we're going to talk about Christian hypocrisy one week. We'll talk about hell. We'll talk about sex and sexuality. We'll talk about science and Christian, Christianity, whether those things uh, can fit together. 
We'll talk about women in the church, angels and demons, like you name it, we're, we're probably going to go there. So it should be pretty eventful. We're excited about this, uh, and we hope that you'll come along with us, because really what we want to do with these questions, we want to try to give you guys answers wherever you're at, whether you are following Jesus or just trying to figure it out. We want to help you along in that, and we want to help equip you guys to have conversations with other people who are asking those questions too. So tonight, we are going to start with a question that our staff team, we get all the time, genuinely. I, I honestly just had this conversation a couple weeks ago with a friend, somebody my age. And the question that we're going to go through tonight is, how can Christians say there's only one true faith? How can Christians claim that there's only one true faith? Like, with all the world religions, it, which there are like anywhere between like five and 10,000 world religions out there. So with all the world religions, with all the things that we could be putting our faith in, with all the things that we could hope in, ideologies, frameworks, you name it, how, how can Christians make the claim that they know that there's only one true faith? How do they do that? Well, I, I have a question for you first, and I'm not, I'm not punting that. I promise we will get back to that. But first, I, I have a different question for you guys. So here's my question. How does a non-Christian, Jesus-hating guy, go from systematically murdering believers, murdering Jesus followers, to writing part of the Bible and dying for his faith? There's a lot there. Let's go one more time. How does a non-Christian, Jesus-hating guy, go from systematically murdering believers to writing part of the Bible and dying for his faith? Okay, here's the story behind that. In the first century, there's this group of people who believes that this guy named Jesus has spent three years doing things that nobody else can do. So their claim is that this guy, Jesus, has come in and he's done things like heal people from their disability and their sickness. Or he's, they're saying he's casting out, driving out demons from people who are possessed by spiritual forces. They say he's been doing things like turning water into fine wine, and he'll take a couple loaves of bread and a, a few fish and then go feed 5,000 people. They say at one point, he, he goes to a tomb of his friend, and he calls into the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, get up, come, come on out. And the guy does. He comes back to life. And they say Jesus himself, after he was killed, three days after that, he rose from the dead. That's what they're claiming, right? And so on top of that, they're saying, okay, this guy, Jesus, he has to be what was known as the Messiah. And that word, Messiah, it's, um, it's a Hebrew word. So it's from the Bible, and it means anointed one. So in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that the first half of the Bible before Jesus has showed up on the scene, there's this running theme of a Messiah an anointed one, a king who they're waiting for, and he's coming to set God's people free. He's going to be the one that bring peace, brings peace to God's people. And they're convinced. They're like, Jesus is that guy. We found him. He is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king that we've been waiting for. The issue is, though, that there is this other group of people and they are the religious group of the day. They're the Jewish people, and they are very unconvinced 
like totally unconvinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And they think that these Christians, these Jesus followers, are spreading lies about God, and they're just confusing the heck out of people. And so their solution is, we got to shut this down. We have to shut Christians up. So that's what they set out to do. And there's one guy in particular who is super good at this, and his name, maybe you know it at this point, his name is Saul or Paul, depending on whether you're using his Hebrew name Saul or his Greek name Paul, which in that time was apparently really common and not confusing at all to have two different names. So that's the way it works. But Saul, Paul, he was really good at wiping out Christianity. That was like his personal mission. And so in the Acts, in the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, so we're back in the Bible, this is the fifth book of the New Testament, right after the Gospels that talk about Jesus' life, Acts tells us about how the church started, how Christianity started. And in it, we get a description of this guy, Saul. So here's what it says about Saul. In chapter 8, it says, Saul began to destroy the church, the Christians, the followers of Jesus. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And then later in Acts, we see that Saul, he's going to describe this himself. He's going to give his rendition of it. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's where Jesus was from. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem, which is the main city of God's people. It's where their temple is. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So this was Saul. This was what he was up to. But it's kind of hard for us in this day and age to really think about what that looked like. Like, we don't really have a concept for that here in the States, at least. But around the world, that's happening, that's happening all the time. Like, take Afghanistan right now, for instance, which about a year ago was taken over by Taliban rule. And there might be a picture in just a second of, of people fleeing from their country last August. And as one man describes it, right now, living as a Christian, he says, Christians are living in fear, in secret, totally underground. So these people, if they are found out to be Christians, they have two options. They can either flee the country or they can be killed. That, that's what's going on in the world. And that gives us an image of what Saul was up to. That's, that's what his mission was. And so we can say, okay, clearly Saul was an extremist, right? Like he was kind of an out there, uber religious dude who just kind of went off the deep end. That's what it looks like at least. But that, that wasn't the case. That really wasn't it. See, what we learn from the New Testament, what we know is that Paul, Saul, he was, he was just an elite. He was a Jewish elite. He was part of the, the religious leaders. And in his day, he was respected. He was taught by the best of the best. He was admired by people, all of that. And we, we get that from a couple different places in the Bible. One of them is in a book called Galatians. And spoiler alert, Paul, Saul, wrote this letter to a church in Galatia. And here's what he says about when he was persecuting these Christians. He said, 
while he was persecuting Christians, I was advancing in Judaism, so Jewish law, beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he was passionate about what he had been taught, the religion he had been taught by his ancestors, and he wanted to pass that on. That was his goal. He says in Philippians, a different letter that he wrote in chapter 3, if it's coming, I got some lag. He, he essentially gives, before this context, he essentially gives like his list of credentials for Jewish law, Jewish heritage, and this is what he says. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which means he had the symbol of being of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which just means that like his his ethnicity, his heritage was spot on. He was a Jewish person through and through. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, he was part of this religious leader group that taught other people the law. As for zeal, persecuting the church, he was stamping out what he thought was false belief. As for, there's one more, can't remember. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he says, in Jewish law, I was following it to the T. I was faithful. So that is his perspective. And it, it kind of means that Saul, he wasn't like some loose cannon, right? He wasn't just on a rampage for kicks. He was a guy who was, from his perspective, he was seeking truth. Like that's what he was after. He thought he knew the truth and he thought he was upholding it, albeit in a really violent and cruel way, right? Still though, we can say, okay, sure, that makes some sense, right? But it's still hard for us to grasp what that was actually like because today in the United States, we live in a really, really, really different culture from what that is. Like if you think about it, religious freedom, religious tolerance, that is like fundamental to being an American citizen. It's in our constitution that we get to practice whatever we choose. And it's not just like, okay, well, I guess we got to let that guy do what he's going to do. No, it's a, it's a value of ours. We want that to be the true in, in the States. And I think more than anybody, I think you guys, Gen Z, your generation, I think you value that maybe more than any other generation has before. I was reading an article uh, about you guys the other day, which I guess that sounds weird the way I put it, but it was about Gen Z. Uh, it was about your genera generation, and it was talking about the things that you guys value most. So here's a list that they gave. Some of the things that you guys value most. Individual expression. Avoiding labels. Having more than one way to be oneself. Authenticity. Radical inclusion. Accepting diverse points of view. Dialogue, not confrontation. And this one's interesting, collecting, you guys like collecting and cross-referencing many sources of information. So Gen Z, you guys, all of you, the things that this article says that you value most uh, are different beliefs and letting people practice different worldviews. You don't want to be defined. You certainly don't want to be defined by somebody else, but maybe not even at all, right? And I should, I should mention first, these are clearly like broad generalizations. So I'm not looking at each one of you and saying you fit each of these category, 
these characteristics, these, these categories. It's probably not the case, right? These are generalizations. But overall, your generation is welcoming and inclusive, and you value different opinions. But what's really interesting about this article, it, it, it's based off of research that says that the driving force, like everything that you guys value, again, you guys collectively, everything you value is out of a, a search for truth. So it says, the search for truth is at the root of all Generation Z's behavior. I find that really interesting. What that means is, okay, here's a diagram, and here's how they kind of break it up. They say, your desire not to, Gen Z's desire not to be defined. Well, that's actually because they're expressing, you guys are expressing individual truth. And that goal, that value of being radically inclusive, it's so that you can connect to different people with different truths. And fewer confrontations, more dialogue. That's all for the purpose of understanding those different truths. And finally, living pragmatically, which is that like you want real concrete evidence. So you're looking at sources, you're cross-referencing things. That's all so that you can just be uncovering new truth. It all comes back to truth. It all comes back to truth. So just like Saul, just like Saul, you and me, we are searching for the truth. We want to know the truth. And I don't know, it looks like this, this day and age, we have found truth in things like individual expression and letting people have their own personal truth. Like those are things that we value and find true. But I don't know, I'm not quite sure that's right because Saul, he was really, really, really convinced that he knew what the truth was. He, his truth was that Jesus was a lie and that Christians, they had to die. That was his truth. Until, until everything changed for him. So let's jump back into Acts 9 and let's see what happens with Saul. Acts 9 says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. These are Jesus' followers. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, Jewish temples, in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, this was Christianity, this was following Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul has this like insane, almost unexplainable experience. And what does he do? Like then what happens? Well, jumping down to verse 19. We're going to get there. Ooh, I skipped some. That's okay. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So disciples, again, are Jesus followers. So remember, he was on his way to do what? He was on his way to kill these Jesus followers. That was his goal. And now that he's here, he's spending time with them, spending several days with them. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. 
So he is going and now preaching in these Jewish temples that Jesus is the Son of God, which is a term that means that God has sent Jesus as his own son to earth to rescue it. Jesus himself is God. That's what Paul, Saul, is saying now. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So days, days ago, this guy was coming. Paul was coming to kill these Christians. And now here we are, and he is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He's saying, yes, actually, Jesus is the long-awaited king. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He is the one who will bring freedom and peace. What? How does that happen? And he goes on. Paul goes on to, for the rest of his life, go from city to city to city to city, talking about the good news of Jesus. He plants churches. He writes letters back and forth, which 13, 13 of those end up in our Bible today. He endures hardship. He's put in prison. He, he's persecuted. And eventually, he's executed. He is beheaded for his faith in Jesus. The same guy, the same guy who he had killed others for believing in, he was now dying for. How does that happen? What changed? What happened there? Well, I think, I think it was an encounter with Jesus. I think what happened is Jesus came into his life and just flipped it upside down, just completely turned it around. An encounter with Jesus, that was what Paul needed. That was what convinced him that Jesus was who he says he was. Which brings us back to our original question. Our original question, which was, how can Christians say that there's only one true faith? What prompts someone to say there is one true faith out there? Well, I think it's the same answer. I think it is the, the fact that people have encounters with Jesus. When we know him, when we experience him, and I'm, I'm not talking about religion, Christianity, whatever. I, I mean the real Jesus, the personal Jesus who is a friend. He wants to get to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And when we have an encounter with him, it changes everything. It changes everything. But some of you right now, understandably, you are right on the verge of tuning me out. You are so close, right? Because you're thinking, yeah, that, that's super cool for Paul that he had an encounter with Jesus. That's really awesome that other people get to have that. But yeah, that, that has not happened in my life. Yeah, Jesus has not shown up in my life. He didn't show up when I went through that really, really hard Thing. He didn't show up when I needed him the most. He didn't even show up when I asked him to. And if that's you, I just want to say I, I really get that. Truly, I have been there. It was my first semester at Mizzou, and I, in a, like a span of a month, I think, I went from thinking I had everything that I ever wanted to being 
the most lonely I had ever been in my life. And I, I will never forget, such a sad moment, I will never forget crying in my dorm bedroom late at night, quietly, because I did not want to wake up my random roommate, because that would be weird. And I was crying, asking for God to show up. Like I needed him to show up. And for about three months, I felt like he was not there. Felt like nothing changed. I felt like no friends came into my life. No comfort really happened. And so I, I really get it. But the next semester, I, I talked to some friends from high school, and they were going to Veritas. And so I went with them. And little by little, week by week, over time, I realized I started to meet Jesus there. I started to meet Jesus in Veritas. And I think, I think when we think about, we imagine what an encounter with Jesus looks like, a lot of times we, we assume that it's always like what happened with Paul. Like it's like, bam, Jesus shows up and then everything's different. Everything's good. But that, that was not the case in my story, right? And I don't think that's the way a lot of people's story work. I, I really don't. I think instead, encounters with Jesus, they can be small, and they can be slow, they can be incremental, they happen over time through lots of habits. And so maybe an encounter with Jesus, maybe it just looks at first like spending time with some Christian friends. I don't know. Maybe encounters with Jesus look like talking to him in prayer again and again, just doing things like tell him, telling him about our day and telling him what we're feeling, asking him for what we need, even when it feels like it, it's not working, even it, if it feels like we're not sure if he's there. The Bible tells us he is, that he is present, that he's with us. And so when we're talking with him, we're, we're meeting him there. Or maybe encounters with Jesus, they happen through reading our Bible. And I know you knew that I was going to say that, but that's what, that's what actually gets us in community with God because God has given his word. The Bible is God's word given to authors to write down. So when we read the Bible, God is speaking to us directly. It's, it's where we meet him. It's where also we hear what God, what Jesus has said about himself. It's, it's where we hear his claims about himself. That, that claim that there's one true religion it doesn't actually come from Christians. I'm sure you've heard Christians say that with positive and negative effects, right? But it's not actually from Christians. It's from Jesus himself. In the book of John, which is one of the four gospels uh, that talks about Jesus's life, Jesus describes himself this way. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is what Jesus is claiming here, which means he's making it clear that he, he's not just uh, a way, a truth. He's not just one life. He is the truth. He's the truth. That's what he is saying. And if he's the truth, then it, uh, it means that other things some other things are, are not true. It actually means that not everything can be true. And so other faiths, other religions, other worldviews, 
if they don't have if they don't have Jesus in it, then it's not true. That's what he's saying. Jesus, he's saying he is the one true faith. And that, that's an uncomfortable statement for us, right? That's, that's the part of the question that makes us a little squirmy. We don't like that part so much. Because it's really kind of intense. But if Jesus is right, if Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, then nothing else holds up right? If, if he's the way, the truth, the life, then any way of living without Jesus is not the way to go. And any life that doesn't have Jesus in it, it's not going to be a full, flourishing, thriving life for us. And any truth claim that doesn't have Jesus at the center of it, well, then it's not true. That's what Jesus is saying. That is his claim about himself. And maybe you don't buy into that. And I just want you to hear, that's okay. That, that is all right with me. Honestly, I'm going to be really frank with you guys. If you came in tonight not convinced that Jesus is the one true faith, then I really don't feel it in, what, 25, 30 minutes that I'm going to convince you of that. If that's happening, amazing. But I'm not banking on that. But what I want you to know is that you have a place here to explore that. Like, you don't have to be convinced tonight in order to be a part of what we are here at Veritas. All of us, myself included, we are learning and growing and discovering our faith as we go together. And so this is a place where you can do that too. We want you here doing that. But maybe what it looks like is just taking a step toward Jesus. Just a step. What do you have to lose? If you don't know where to start, I'm going to give you three easy, simple ideas. These are not revolutionary, just so you know. They're not going to blow your mind. But there are three ideas on how to take a step toward Jesus. First, ask someone about their faith. Like, just go grab lunch with someone you know who is a Christian and just ask them about what they believe. Maybe that sounds weird. I don't know. Maybe it is. But it doesn't have to be like an interview thing, right? It's not formal. Just like... Hang out with people and hear what they believe and why they believe it. Okay, number two. Read the gospel of, I'm going to say Mark, actually. This is, Matthew's an awesome one too. But read the gospel of Mark. And just get to know, it's the second gospel in the New Testament. Just get to know who Jesus is through that. We have a way of making that super easy for you tonight. So if you guys scan the QR code on on the seat in front of you, we have a, a downloadable PDF version of a study that The Crossing did a couple years ago that just walks through Mark, and it explains who Jesus is. You get to know what his mission is, what his life looked like, and you really just get to know Jesus. So read through the Gospel of Mark. Number three, come to Camp Veritas. Come with us to Camp Veritas. I know this sounds like a plug, but honestly, each and every year, you guys, students, tell me this was a real turning point. Camp Veritas is a, is a turning point. Like, people who were kind of on the fence, weren't really sure what they thought about Veritas or Jesus, they came with us for some reason, and then everything started to change. There was a, there's a student that I know who recently, I've gotten to know her over the last two years, but I've just really watched like a lot of awesome things, a lot of fruit, a lot of change happen recently in her life. And so I just reached out. I, I 
texted her the other day and I said, hey, you know, like, tell me your story. What's been going on? Why are you following Jesus and how has that happened? And she said, oh, well, I came into college and I really wasn't sure what I thought about Jesus. Um, I would have called myself a Christian, but I mean, I'm not really sure why. But then, she said, I took some steps that might have seemed scary at the time, but seriously changed my life. I went to a newcomer's event my third year. The event was at Peace Park and all freshmen. But God called me to go, and I went alone. I remember her at this event. I thought, oh, man, this junior is not going to come back because this is a freshman event, and that's tough. But she did. Someone got me involved and hooked up with a small group. I went to Camp Veritas, not knowing anyone, but it allowed me to meet so many people that were like-minded and became instant lifetime friends. Veritas has changed my life and my relationship with the Lord. Music team, you, you guys can come back up. See, in all those little places, all those small things that she mentioned, she had encounters with Jesus. And that, that is what changed everything. It wasn't really Veritas, right? I mean, that was a conduit. That was how God worked. But Jesus was the one to change everything for her, those encounters. So wherever you are at tonight with Jesus, whether you are completely unconvinced or you have been following him for years, seek out those encounters. Meet with Jesus. I I was thinking about this talk uh, a lot in the last couple weeks, and I think I could have tried to answer it a lot of different ways. So if you came tonight and what you were looking for was for some rational arguments uh, about why Christianity is tenable, plausible, why it's an option, why it could be the one true faith, then I'll be out at the welcome desk and just come talk to me because that's really good stuff. That is awesome. But I, I really think that the best argument that we have is in what Jesus said about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life what he says. Christianity, it's not really about Christianity, right? Not really. It's not uh, some philosophy. It's not a worldview. It's not something somebody made up to promote themselves. No, it's a person. It is a relationship with Jesus. That's what Christianity is. It is knowing and trusting and following the person who is the way, the truth, and the life in all senses. Jesus, he is the one who changes everything. Jesus changes everything and he's inviting you, you, each and every one of you, he is inviting you and me into a relationship with him. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. So just take a step toward Jesus. Go and meet Jesus here.